Hello and welcome to The Next Page, the podcast of the UN Library and Archives Geneva, dedicated to conversations on multilateralism. This is It Takes a Global Crisis, a series of four special episodes in collaboration with the SDG Lab at UN Geneva. Hi, I'm Edward Mashad from the SDG Lab. And we're Tiffany Verga and Natalie Alexander from the Library and Archives. Together, we'll explore how the COVID-19 pandemic has in many ways set in motion sustainable development solutions, things that were often talked about but rarely implemented before the crisis. We'll also consider the challenges, the gaps, and the limitations of progress that the pandemic has highlighted. We'll be talking to a range of experts and practitioners as they work both on the ground and in advancing policy on their experiences across the themes of digitalization and connectivity, the environment as a key to resilience, sustainable cities, and social protection. At the end of each episode, we'll also share with you a spark, an idea from a real-life project relevant to the episode's theme that is sparking change to advance the SDGs. So, did it take a global crisis? Let's find out. Hi everyone, I'm Edward Mashad and welcome to the third episode in our special podcast mini-series between the SDG Lab, where I work, and the UN Library and Archives Geneva. We're releasing an episode each month, and if you're joining us for the first time, you can explore our previous episodes, where we introduce the series and explore digitalization and connectivity, as well as the link between our environment and social resilience. Today, our guests are continuing the discussion on how the global pandemic has shaped our understanding of sustainable development and the SDGs through the lens of social protection. I think there is a silver lining to the to the pandemic. It is really the realization how much social protection systems are important for for countries and not only in times of crisis but really also for people's everyday lives. You've just heard the voice of Christina Berendt. Christina is the head of the Social Policy Unit in the Social Protection Department at the International Labour Organization here in Geneva. And in fact, it's been really an, an opportunity to rise to the challenge in relation to many different key areas in terms of addressing the problems in our society. And that's Dr. Kate Phillip, Program Lead for the Presidential Employment Stimulus. And she's connecting from South Africa. The COVID-19 pandemic has put social protection in the spotlight, inviting us to reflect on what we've learned during the crisis and how we can better prepare strong social protection policies for future events. And our guests today are going to bring us some insights into this topic. So let's get started. Christina Barron, can you start us off by providing an easy to grasp or understand definition of social protection? And what does it really mean in practice? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Edward. And that's actually quite a difficult question because social protection has kind of many different meanings and in different countries. But when we talk about social protection, we talk about social protection systems. And this is basically the set of measures that countries have at their disposal really to provide uh, income security for people and to provide access to health care. So, and this normally includes different types of schemes and programs. It includes social insurance programs or schemes. 
It includes social assistance. It includes universal benefits, for example, such as universal child benefits, universal pensions, which are available in, in some countries. So it's it's really the broad range of measures that support and protect people really from childhood, basically, through the working age, including unemployment benefits, for example, or sickness benefits. Um, and obviously, health protection is an important part of it until kind of old age pensions. And I think another element which is important to, to add there, it's also a combination of cash benefits in many cases, but also looking at access to public services. No, thank you, Christina. That's that's really an important point. And I like how you you kind of unpacked social protection for us. It's not just one one element, but it's it's quite varied. And this issue is very much at the center of, of the work of the International Labour Organization, the ILO, promoting social justice and related policies, as well as the assistance that is given to countries so that all members of society have adequate levels and access to social protection. And we're thinking now, of course, this issue in the context of of COVID. Christina, what are some of the changes that you've been seeing in social protection systems, policies or programs since the onset of COVID-19? I think we have seen two things in in particular. The first thing is that social protection um, has really played a key role in countries' policy responses to the crisis. I think it was really a key part of the measures that countries have taken to protect people's health, to protect people's jobs and to protect people's incomes. So it has really put social protection very much in the in the spotlight and has highlighted the importance of social protection. And it has also highlighted quite a lot of the pre-existing social protection gaps. So where we have seen, especially for workers in the informal economy, but also other groups, we have seen really the devastating consequences of not having access to, to protection. And fortunately, um, almost all countries in the world have actually used social protection measures in their crisis responses. At the ILO, we have uh, monitored um, crisis responses. And I mean, we have counted more than 1,700 social protection measures um, taken in response to the crisis in almost all countries of the of the world. I mean, it's a broad range of different measures. It includes job retention schemes, unemployment protection, income support, um, health protection, sickness benefits, child benefits, uh, better access to childcare, for example. So it's a very broad range of measures that countries have taken. And I think one of the key lessons that we have seen uh, in those crisis responses is that countries who already had quite good and robust social protection systems, they could react much better to the crisis, much faster and at much more scale. So they could uh, really use, on the one hand, use the existing systems and have the kind of the, those systems mobilize in a way the automatic responses, the inbuilt responses, but also improve the way how they operated in a, in a quite a quick way. But on the other hand, countries with weaker social protection systems, they faced much bigger difficulties in extending that support to the population, not only because of financing challenges, but also because of a lack of the administrative in infrastructure. So, I mean, a lack of databases, a lack of payment mechanisms, simply a lack of kind of knowing how to reach people. 
and then this is especially clear for workers in the in the informal economy. That was one example where we have really seen those those difficulties. But even in those countries, quite a lot of measures have been adopted. So I think there is a silver lining to the to the pandemic. It is really the realization how much social protection systems are important for for countries and not only in times of crisis, but really also for people's everyday lives. But at the same time, a lot of these measures have been temporary. So a lot of those measures have already ended or are about to end. And that really leaves countries at a very important crossroads. And the question is a bit now at at this point on whether countries are actually, um, I mean, having realized how important social protection is, whether they really use that policy window now for making really the right choices with regard to the future of their social protection systems. I mean, are they going to reinforce their social protection systems and making sure that they are better prepared for the next crisis? And not only for those crises, but, but really providing the day-to-day support of the of the population. Or are they going to fall back into kind of a, a low-road approach of minimalist social protection policies and fiscal consolidation? And especially given the fact that in many countries there are now huge fiscal pressures, especially after the crisis, I think this is really also a question of how to mobilize the international support to support those countries with insufficient capacities to really allow them to make the necessary investment mm into their social protection systems. Thank you, Christine. I'm, I'm going to bring Kate in now. Uh, Kate Phillip, you're joining us from, from South Africa. I think it's a good way to segue to your work and what you're doing in, in South Africa. So can you share with our listeners how your country has, has used social protection measures to tackle the, the social and the economic inequalities that have been brought out by the pandemic? And importantly, who are you trying to reach or who have you been reaching? Uh, Christina did mention briefly about the informal economy and informal workers. So I think it would be interesting if you can also just bring in that perspective as well. Absolutely. Thank you. As Christina's made clear, you know, the impacts of the crisis are multifaceted. And so we've had to have a multifaceted response. On the one hand, we've seen increased unemployment, and with that goes increased poverty and hunger. We had an existing high level of unemployment even before the pandemic. Uh, But we've also seen things like disrupted supply lines. We've seen disruptions in food systems. And actually, what that highlighted is just how critical many of our communities, just how dependent many of our communities are on the informal sector for, for food supply. So really, it was challenging on many fronts. And the response has been on many fronts. And in fact, it's been really an an opportunity to rise to the challenge uh, in relation to many different key areas uh, in terms of addressing the problems in our society. I think at a formal level, that was the easy part, is a scheme called the Temporary Employer-Employee Relief Scheme was rolled out, uh, which reached over 5 million workers who received payments in a context in which their normal wages and salaries might have been disrupted. The big challenge was the informal sector because, of course, they are hard to see. They are not registered. We don't have a database of them. 
um, administrative systems don't recognize them. We don't have the kinds of systems in place that could readily and quickly provide support to the informal sector. So that was, in fact, the initial challenge which came onto our desk was to say, how do we provide support to the informal sector? And what also became clear as we looked at it was how many households with unemployed people had informal income as their main source of income. So really it was a double whammy. Uh, people who were really unemployed were going to take you know, a double kick in the sense and face deepened uh, poverty and, and, and food hunger. And food hunger started to escalate very quickly. And that was the context in which there was a proposal to introduce a, what was initially called a special COVID grant. It's become known as the Social Relief of Distress Grant. And that grant is targeted at the poorest in the society. And really the critical question was not so much a policy question. Everybody was clear we needed to provide the support. But the critical question was how to do it. In the context of the pandemic, when public offices were closed, when no means testing could take place, how would we target this grant? How would people apply? And we we pulled together a crack team of financial and payment experts. And really, the critical issue was, could we roll out a grant to some 8 million people in the timeframes um, in an equitable way with fair systems that was efficient and effective under the conditions of the pandemic? And a lot of innovation happened in that space because that is exactly what we did. Uh, we rolled that grant out relatively quickly. Um, it was able to reach millions of people. And we did it using digital systems in a way that had not been done before. Uh, firstly, the application process was on mobile phones. The vetting process, we managed to join up administrative data for the very first time in order to target and also to vet applicants. So applicants who provided their ID number were vetted against the population register to make sure that they were alive and weren't children and you know were qualified for the grant. But we also then ran that data against the unemployment insurance fund, against our other social grants, against the tax system, in order to get what was called a net file of eligible beneficiaries. And that was all done using joined up administrative systems. And then payments also were digital. And so all of this was, in a sense, technical innovation in support of an urgent social need. Mm. And Kate, what, what has that meant then for, for people who have been recipients of uh, the program that has been made available? What has that meant for them in terms of their day-to-day -day life during COVID? So the quantum of the grant is unfortunately small, but the data shows that it has made a difference uh, in terms of food poverty and hunger. And really, that was the most immediate crisis. But I think that was just one part of the response. It was a critical part. But what I would want to add are some of the economic measures, in particular the use of an employment stimulus to create public employment and provide livelihood support in new ways and at a new level of scale. Um, and so using a range of different government departments, 12 different departments put up their hands to participate. Uh, we're also working with the non-state sector to create new forms of work that serve the public good and to create jobs in that way over this period. So that's also a complementary part of a package that includes other elements as well, but I'll stop there. Well, thank you. Thank you, Kate. Christina Barrett, I just want you to, to respond like, to what Kate has shared because you know, that's very much the perspective from South Africa. ILO, you have that global perspective. What are you observing in, in other countries and regions around these measures? 
what you've been calling for, what the ILO has been calling for decades, um, that these measures are actually sustainable ones and not one-offs. And you referenced that earlier when you started off, that that's also a major concern and that how some countries that did have robust social protection systems in place were able to, to fare better and, uh, than those that didn't. So, yeah, if you could just respond to, to what Kate shared and then just to give a bit of context to what you're seeing and, and learning from other countries around the world. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, and I think what Kate just shared is really fascinating because it really highlights so many aspects of a really kind of a good and comprehensive crisis, crisis response. I mean, one one element which I think is really key is really thinking employment and social protection policies together because what we see quite often that they are kind of be treated as something which kind of is very different and far away from each other. But but I think what really made the, the policy response in South Africa special was the fact that employment and social protection was very much so much kind of thought as one and also that the policy responses were really um, integrated. And I think this was particularly important in a crisis that really affected both employment, but also people's lives in terms of access to food and nutrition and a lot of other elements together. Another element was really that she highlighted is, is really about the administrative capacities and really kind of bringing different parts of government together and having innovations, also using kind of digital technologies in a, in a good way. And, and I think this is also what we saw in, in some other countries. Maybe just mentioning a few examples from, from other countries. For example, in Togo, Togo implemented a, a cash transfer also on a kind of mobile uh, basis. It's, it went also by a phone app to support workers in the informal economy, reaching over half a million workers within a month. But that was a kind of a, for the time being, a kind of a three-month program. And the question is, is kind of what is going to continue after that? In a way, the fact that the government reached out to workers in the informal economy, which was not the case previously, I mean, how can that be used in the future also to provide better protection to them? Which I think he also, with regard to improving working conditions and maybe also supporting in the longer run a transition from the informal economy to the formal economy, which is certainly kind of in many contexts, not something that can happen from one day to the other. But I think it's important also to have that perspective as a kind of a longer term perspective, at, at least. Um, I think also looking at, at access to healthcare is important. And we've seen that in many countries, measures have been have been taken to guarantee access to healthcare, also including people who might not have had access to healthcare previously. I think in, in some countries, um, also, I mean, including migrant migrants, for example, I mean, also migrants in an irregular situation who might have been excluded. But I think one of the lessons from the crisis was also that it is really important to make sure that really everyone has access, because I think and this has become very clear that the, the EU um, social protection is really important and we can only stop that when really everyone has adequate um, protection. 
maybe just adding one more point, and I think that is also a lesson that we have seen in many countries, especially countries that have um, put in place job retention schemes, or sometimes it's called a partial unemployment benefits, sometimes it's called furlough benefits, it comes in different forms. But that did not only support workers who had kind of reduced working, working time because of the crisis or sometimes even uh, could not, not work at all during a certain period of time. And I think what has become very visible also with those measures is that on the one hand, they provide support to workers, but on the other hand, also they provide support to enterprises. And I think mm-hmm. this complementarity is also a key point because quite often social protection is seen as something which is more a cost for enterprises rather than a benefit. And I think that's maybe one of the other big lessons that many people have drawn from the crisis is also the realization that good and solid social protection systems are also a big part of a good policy environment for enterprises where they can operate. And so I think really the the complementarity and the importance of social protection, both for the social development, but also for the economic development, is, is really another of those key lessons that, that we have drawn from the, from the crisis. And then I think, yeah, the, this kind of integrated approach, it also has a, a health element. There's the economic element. There's also the social aspect that, that social protection systems uh, bring forward through effective programs. Kate, I want to come back to you because, I mean, COVID-19 is, hasn't been South Africa's first health crisis. I'm referencing HIV here. So how has the decades-long combat against HIV shaped South Africa's response? And it's in a way, it's the same kind of triple crisis. It's a social crisis, it's a health crisis, and it's an economic crisis. And that's something that we've seen with, with HIV um, in many countries around the world. And now we have COVID. And also, Christina talked about that earlier, and I'll go back to that point, about how countries that had experiences that had emergency programs in place did much better. And South Africa, with your HIV experience in responding, where has that brought you today in coping with COVID over the last two years? That is such an interesting question, because actually there really has been a link in terms of the response. And a critical part of that has been that in the period where the HIV crisis was particularly strong, there was the introduction of community health workers, And interestingly, those community health workers were actually supported using a public employment modality. And it goes back to what Christina was saying about the importance of thinking in integrated ways uh, about these issues and the interface between the social protection policies and um, employment support of different kinds. So those community health workers were an absolutely key part of South Africa's arsenal against the pandemic, if you like. And the lessons and the community resilience built around those kinds of forms of support uh, has been a really important part of the response. I think what's also interesting here is uh, Christina also mentioned issues of early childhood development and care. And these are often areas that are part of the informal economy. And this is another example where in South Africa, we included work in the care sector and in early childhood development as part of a public employment strategy. That actually meant that mainly women, often unpaid in that sector or working informally, for the very first time had rights at work, contracts, and a degree of income security through a public employment modality, which also gave that work social recognition. 
and has allowed a pathway since then into increasing formalization and integration of those forms of work. So again, what we're seeing is how all these different dimensions uh, speak to each other and how important uh, integrated approaches are. Christina, at the International Labour Organization, so are you optimistic that other countries will will follow the example of South Africa? You also cited uh, Togo. Way at the beginning, you you mentioned that there have been some over you know seventeen hundred different types of measures that that countries have have used over the past two years that you and your team um, and the ILO have have recorded. So, how positive are you that we're going to see some long term social protection? systems, measures, and policies in place that will ultimately help lift people out of poverty, that will ultimately help bring people from the informal to the formal economy, and also contribute to all the other sustainable development goals. And we've heard that. Kate talked about education. We've heard about health. So what are you thinking? What makes you feel optimistic about this situation going forward? Yeah, thanks a lot for that for that important question. And uh, I think I am a, a, an optimist. <laughs> so, I mean, I have been kind of referring to this crossroads that countries are in at the moment, where they really, I think, having realized the importance of social protection and also of an integrated approach to employment and social protection, as Kate highlighted, and, and I think in countries, but also in international organizations and in, in the UN, I think there is really the realization that social protection is really a key part of the of the response uh, if we want to reach the sustainable development goals, because it contributes to the social, to the economic, but also to the environmental dimension of the of the sustainable development goals. And um, I think there is a growing support really to follow that um, that high road approach, those kinds of investments in social protection systems that are um, on the one hand uh, universal in the sense that they really provide protection to, to everyone throughout people's life courses, but also provide really adequate protection, not just not just at a minimum level with that protection, which is comprehensive. But on the other side also, and I think we need, also need to think about the financing uh, and the economic dimension and the political dimension, so really thinking about social protection systems that are sustainable, both financially but also socially sustainable. I mean, I see a much bigger support around the world. And uh, I think that has been reflected, for example, in a document that was adopted at the last International Labour Conference back in June last year, which provides a very strong commitment to such a, a high road approach towards universal social protection. And as you know, um, in the ILO, um, it is obviously the, the governments that are represented in the in the ILO, but we also have workers and employers around the table. And I think it's important also to have that broader tripartite approach to that. But I think also, I mean, at the UN level, we see a very strong support um, also from the UN Secretary General in the common agenda that he put forward last year. So I think there is quite a lot of political support, but I think at the same time, I mean, we have to be conscious about the situation that many countries are in, which make them even more vulnerable with kind of high and growing debts, in some cases, um, really kind of rapidly growing inflation, higher poverty levels, 
challenges when it comes to to their economies. What is needed now is also um, a very strong support also for those countries that have difficulties of stemming those these challenges alone. And I think this is really a call on the UN, certainly. And I think there has been a call recently when the UN Secretary General has put forward a global accelerator for jobs and social protection, which exactly has this integrated approach around employment and, and social protection with very, very strong support. But I think we also need the support also of the broader community. I mean, also thinking about the international financial institutions. I think they have come around also to um, with a new position paper, which was um, which was uh, published already before the crisis in 2019, thinking about how to protect and how to promote um, public expenditure in health, education and social protection. And I think the support also of the International Monetary Fund and all the other uh, international financial institutions would be extremely critical uh, in that respect. But also governments from richer countries, because one of the other lessons we learned from the global crisis is that this is really a global challenge. And especially when it comes to tackling the pandemic, I think we need to have this global picture in mind. And we see that with the vaccinations. Um, I think unless there is really a greater rollout of those measures, I mean, we're not going to to really reach those objectives. And I think so what is needed is really kind of a, a common approach and a common support of that important objectives in order really to get to a situation uh, where all people have access um, to adequate social protection. And Kate, what makes you optimistic based on your experience in South Africa and maybe what you've also been been seeing in, in other countries to ensure that the lessons and the, the initiatives, the programs and the impact continues to go forward in social protection? Well, I think there are a number of different dimensions. I think the uh, social relief of distress grant that I mentioned really filled a social protection gap that has been a serious problem in South Africa for a long time, which is that unemployed people who have not contributory scheme don't receive any form of unemployment insurance in South Africa. And given our levels of unemployment, which have been over 25% for 25 years, that has been a real contributor to levels of poverty and inequality. That gap was closed for the first time by this grant. And the social benefits of that are becoming very apparent. So the grant has been renewed several times, and there is a very active uh, debate in the society about whether it should be sustained and institutionalized. So I think this crisis has really put the spotlight on some of our pre-existing challenges and social protection gaps. I think the other thing is that makes me optimistic is that there's just so much innovation happening in this context of the crisis. So in the context of the employment stimulus, um, you know, really we are finding new ways to create forms of work that contribute to the common good and doing so in ways that partner with other actors. So, for example, our social employment strategy is actually a strategy to deliver public employment, but through 
uh, civil society organizations um, who have come forward with a wide range of proposals that include support to ending gender-based violence. It includes early childhood development. There's urban agriculture. There's placemaking. Um, there's just a whole lot of innovation happening. And we're finding mechanisms to support that agency in the wider society um, and to unlock community involvement and participation in creating forms of work that actually in their own way contribute to an idea of social protection that, if I can put it this way, puts the social back into social protection and involves uh, all kinds of actors in the kinds of work and activities um, that can contribute to resilience, to social cohesion and um, to dealing with the crises of poverty and inequality that we face. So, yes, I think it's, uh, there's a lot of source for optimism that comes out of the crisis. I like, uh, Kate, how you said that, you know, putting the social back in to social protection. And I think that what inspires me from what, what you've shared and also, Christina, is that this issue... Social protection is one that looks at the whole spectrum of, of society. It also looks at the whole spectrum of, of economies. Christian, you even mentioned there where we need to also have more discussion engagement on, on the environment side, uh, also financing, and then, of course, the important element of political support. So we could definitely take each of these issues and, and have another podcast on them. But I really want us to now, we're going to close up and... In the spirit of, of this podcast and what we've been asking our guests to wrap up is to end this sentence. It took a global crisis too. So, Christina, over to you. Yes, yeah, thanks a lot. I think my answer would be, I mean, it took a global crisis for people to realize the really essential importance of social protection, really also as a means of solidarity, and strengthening the solidarity element in the, the various areas of, of policies. So that just as a short answer to a difficult question. And Kate? I think from everything I've said, you know exactly what I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that it took a global crisis to push us to innovate in delivering social support at new levels, including forms of work that serve the common good and to take these to new levels of scale and with new levels of impact. Well, thanks to you both. I'm extremely optimistic regarding this issue and all of the related issues to social protection. And I think the fact that we've highlighted how it contributes to the broader sustainable development goal agenda is something that I hope also our listeners will, will take away because that's ultimately what we're trying to, we're trying to showcase through this podcast series. So thank you again, Christina Barrent of the International Labor Organization and Kate Phillip with the Presidential Employment Stimulus in South Africa for sharing your time your expertise, and also your insight into this very important issue. So thank you again and take care. Thank you. Welcome to this episode's Spark. This is a segment of our SDG Lab series, where at the end of each episode, we'll explore inspirational stories related to the conversation to spark further understanding and curiosity. You may be wondering why we talked about investments for social protection in this episode. And that's because according to the International Labour Organization in 2020, 
Developing countries should invest approximately US $1.2 trillion into social protection. On average, that's 3.8% of a country's GDP to ensure that everyone maintains an adequate standard of living and healthcare and that the 2030 agenda can be realised. What this means is basic income security for children, persons of active age unable to earn income, and older persons. This also includes healthcare that's accessible, available, and of high quality such as maternity care. But what type of social protection systems are there, and what do they look like? When countries design their social protection systems, they have two main options, to opt for universal coverage or a more targeted approach. A universal social protection scheme is one that's available to everyone within a category. For example, it may be an age group such as elderly persons. These are often more inclusive and less likely to discriminate against people. However, these schemes aren't always the best option for all, and some developing countries may opt to choose a targeted approach to benefit those specifically living in poverty. Often this allows funds to be saved and the most vulnerable segment of the population to be benefited. Both options come with their benefits and challenges. It's up to the country to determine which is the best option for them. So how can countries and you learn more about designing social protection in your states? The Social Protection Toolbox, designed by the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Asia and the Pacific, is the perfect resource for that. This toolbox was designed to provide support for policymakers to build inclusive social protection systems and for people to greater understand its importance. On the website, you'll find tools and modules to understand what social protection is, how to finance it, and how it's linked to the SDGs so that we can learn from other people's practices. To find out more about the Social Protection Toolbox, visit the interactive platform at socialprotection-toolbox.org to better understand the challenges and solutions in your region. It Takes a Global Crisis is produced by the UN Library and Archives Geneva and the SDG Lab. The production team is Edward Michard, Marlene Borlon, Yevgenia Otohova, Tiffany Verga, and Natalie Alexander. If you'd like to give us feedback or share your comments, you can email us at sdg-lab at un.org. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, leave us a review, or find us at UNOG Library on Twitter and UN Library and Archives Geneva on Facebook. Or find us at SDG Lab on Twitter or SDG Lab at UN Geneva on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.